Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less tax. This is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of WealthAbility. So for several years now, the government has very heavily incentivized real estate. And so today we're actually going to discover how to uh, double, triple, even quadruple your returns on real estate really through debt and taxes, and why real estate can be such a powerful, passive income producing um, investment. And I have my good, good friend and uh, expert, absolute expert in real estate and learned it the hard way, learned it by by doing it, um, uh, Dr. Tom Burns. Uh, Tom, welcome. Hi, thank you, Tom. Uh, happy to be here. Thank you very much. So could you give us, uh, for those of you, who, th those who don't know you, could you give us a little of your background, how you just got started in real estate and why? Yeah, you bet. So uh, strangely enough, I started my life as a doctor, but uh, for one reason or another, decided I needed a, little, uh, a second stream of income and real estate fit my uh, lifestyle. So I started uh, a long time ago, probably 30 years ago, and uh, I, I started by jumping in and trying to buy things. So I just started small. Tell people everybody starts everybody starts somewhere, and I started really small, and just over time developed a network and partners, and the the properties grew and the numbers grew. And today I've got I've got one partner. We own some office property, and I've got another partner. And we have a, a private equity real estate firm based in Austin, Texas. So it's been a progression and a learning experience. So I I I read you're up over two hundred million dollars in uh, real estate under under management. It's uh, actually uh, seven hundred and fifty million. Wow! So yeah. I'm I'm my my dad is way old. That's uh, <laughs> uh, that that's cool. Congratulations! That's fantastic. Yeah, thanks. So thanks. you you said that real estate fits your lifestyle. What what do you mean by that? So you know, I was a doctor, right? I, I didn't have the background, experience, or money, or anything actually to you know to kind of go start a business. I wasn't going to become a stock trader. Basically, I was looking for money outside of medicine. Real estate fit me because. It moves slow, low barrier to entry. Uh, you could do it with partners or without. I could do it part-time or full-time. And basically, real estate's just simple math. You know, you buy something, somebody gives you money to use that, and if that money's enough to cover all your bills, there's a little bit left over for you to use. I thought that was pretty simple, and so I kind of took that route. You know, you say it's simple, and yet we know lots of people have lost money in, in real estate. So when you think about, okay, you, over the years, I I mean, maybe you've not made mistakes. My guess, my guess is you have. When when you think of the mistakes you've made, what what kind of mistakes have you made and and how have you adjusted to those mistakes? Oh, you bet. I've, I've made plenty. You know, you see, 
I was just giving a talk yesterday. You give the talk, they look, you know, they look wonderful. They're like Facebook posts, right? But I stopped at the end and said, you know, always underlying those are the mistakes. That's where we learn everything. So I've, I've, my number one was not necessarily vetting people that I was either investing uh, in their deals or investing as a partner with them or working with them. Uh, you know, quite a, some, some of the folks that I was associated with are in jail. Some have been raided by the FBI. So, you know, that happens. So my, my character and integrity antenna went up. And uh, also we, uh, you know, we, we make deep, deep dives into people and, and talk to a lot of people, make sure we're connecting up with good folks. Uh, uh, I bought an apartment complex before I knew what I was doing and uh, barely got out of that with my shirt. And so that sort of let me know that, you know, if you're going to do something, you probably ought at least have a, either somebody with you that knows what they're doing or have a little bit of background before you start. There's not, there's, there's a lot to be said for learning as you go, which is kind of how I did. But as it got bigger, it's a lot better to have have a little bit of expertise on your team, which helped me move forward to build a team. So, uh, yeah, we uh, and didn't ever really get caught in short term lending, but I did sort of, you know, Tom, uh, in in right, right before the Great Recession, we had some deals going where I had some uh, mezzanine debt sort of personally guaranteed short-term air quotes short-term private debt you know one of them was for a restaurant that we bought my suggestion to everybody is don't buy a restaurant but um <laughs> so things changed right and so that short term became long term and these notes were at 18 percent personally guaranteed by tom burns right so what happened is when the great recession happened uh, most of my stuff did okay I pretty much, you know, I knew, I always put that in quotes. I kind of knew what stuff was going to probably go flat and not produce income. But I was really confident in some other stuff, so I knew I'd be okay. Well, I found out there that I can't predict the future because I was wrong about that one thing that was going to keep paying me money. So that went, that dried up for various reasons. And when all that dried up, I had money that I owed to people and I had to pay that. So I had to get lines of credit from the bank. I paid that 18%, arbitraged it down to about 4% and took a few years to pay off those lines of credit. So I missed the first few years of the great sale of real estate right after the great recession. So painful lesson, but a good lesson. So that's led me up to you know kind of where I am now. I've, I'm a little bit more cashed up than I might've been back in 2008. Yeah. I have a lot more mistakes, but. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to the, We'll, we'll get we'll get eventually to where we are today in today's economy. But you mentioned a couple of things that I thought were interesting. First of all, you said you started small, yep. and and then you started talking about the team and the people around you. So if you can start start with the okay, you started small. What do you what, what do you mean by that? How small did you start, and why was that important to you? You bet. Well, you know, I started small because. Uh, uh, number one, I kind of had to, didn't know that much of what I was doing. And I did know back then and certainly know now if you start small and you make mistakes, at least your mistakes will be small. And I, I encourage people to, if they want to learn, start small because your mistakes can be small, but the lessons can be big. And that's kind of how it worked out. Um, I, I continued to do that. I got very good actually at one particular market and became sort of a little quasi expert in one particular asset class in a, in a very tight little local market. And it made me some, some nice money. So, so can we, can I stop you right there? Cause I think yeah. you get something that most people don't pay attention to. And that is you became really good 
at a very niche market, very small market. Um, Why was that? I mean, what, what was that that got you to really be that specialized and why did that make a difference? Oh man. Um, So I, back in the day when I started, uh, you looked in the news, but we didn't have, you know, there wasn't, you couldn't Google stuff. Uh, You know, we were still typing DOS commands into computers. So I looked in the newspaper on Sunday nights, there was a real estate section. I had decided it's time for me to go learn. You know, I'm going to be in real estate. I'm going to go buy something. So I looked in the papers. I, I found stuff and it was a condominium and the West campus at the university of Texas. It had my price range is essentially why I did it. Right. So I, you know, I'll keep the story short, but I, I called the number on the thing. I went down there and uh, looked at it. And by then I sort of knew the math. I could, add up the math. And I knew the 1% rule. I had kind of learned about that. Can you, uh, if you would explain the 1% rule? Yeah. 1% rule, which is really hard to find right now is basically if something, whatever something sells for, if the rent's roughly 1% of the selling price, you're probably going to make cash flow on that. So if it sells for a hundred thousand dollars and rents for a thousand, you're probably going to probably going to cash flow that thing. Uh, so I bought this. I knew nothing, Tom. I had nothing. And uh, the broker and the, they everybody walked, held my hand and walked me through it. And I bought this condominium. Uh, didn't know what a financial statement was. Didn't know how to get an inspection. Didn't know how to do a contract. You know, everything about buying a property, I didn't know. Which is a great story because that's where I learned it, right? Well, I ended up making some passive income. Got addicted to that. Did it again. I called the guy, said, hey, I kind of like this. You got another one? He said, well, sure, I got one down the street. So we went and looked at that one. The numbers seemed like they'd work out. I bought that one, still learned some more lessons, but it take, took less time and less anguish to buy than the first one. Uh, it's, let's, do you have another one? He said, sure. So I bought another, another. And, and before long, I knew that market like the back of my hand. I could tell you in five minutes if a unit was going to make me money. I got so good that I bought one side unseen. I bought one for no money down. Didn't plan on doing that, but I knew more about the market than the selling broker and the seller themselves. Uh, so uh, that knowledge allowed me to be really good in this little tiny niche market. And I bought quite a few. I, I didn't stop. I bought quite a few of those uh, until it got discovered and the 1% rule kind of fell out of favor and it was a little harder to make cash. So uh, that started my, that was my first real estate portfolio. And I'll tell you, I still own all those to this day. So I often ask people, when do you think the last time was that I saw that condo? Well, it was over 25 years ago when we went to inspect it and all, and ever since then, it's been sending me money every month. And you can imagine, Tom, what inflation's done to the value of that property. So they're all lost. I could have refinanced them. I have chosen not to for security reasons. I just want to, I just want to have that. I can tap into it if I want to, but portfolio itself has grown quite large. Uh, the cash flow is wonderful. And so that, that was a nice, you know, that was a nice way to start. So I, I think you discovered something that um, a lot of people have a tough time with. You know, there's the old saying that a niche will make you rich, right? right? And, 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 and I tell people all the time, I'm going, you really need to get really clear on your criteria. And then you just do the same thing over and over again. And it sounds right. like that's exactly what you did. You just got, you, you, you got really good at that basically student housing um, right. market and, and you did it over and over again so that you knew it without even looking at the property itself. You knew this was going to be a cash flowing property. Right. Right. And that's really valuable to know your market. And of course it went to where we bought, you know, instead of buying just one at a time, we bought 40 at a time, that sort of thing. And, and, and it grew. 
and and to finish and to you know if you if you want to answer your question you said kind of how'd you how'd you get going after that i i sort of felt like i plateaued so i went and asked for help i had a friend who was a who was a real estate developer i said will you teach me so uh he laughed at me and said well you're a rich doctor you don't need to know this stuff i said no i'd really like to learn so that's you know that's kind of where you asked about building the team so my, my team for the condominiums was you know my banker and my property manager and he's been my team for 25 years but i i increased the numbers of people on my team by you know kind of getting a mentor and learning another phase of life we developed you know medical office property um you know after that i you know i so on the, on, on the mentorship, Tom, um, uh, to kind of to stop you right there, um, on the mentorship side, why'd you go for a mentor? Why, you know, I mean, you've been successful and, and I know a lot of people, well, I'm successful here, so I can just apply that somewhere else. What made you decide to go to that coach or that mentor instead of just, um, you know, doing it yourself? It's, yeah, I wanted more and didn't know how to do it. You know, I, I felt like I'd kind of hit a bit of a ceiling. I had a nice portfolio, but it wasn't a life-changing portfolio for sure. And as we know, real estate kind of moves slow, right? So I wanted more. I wanted I wanted to scale a little bit. And, and I kind of liked what he did. I, you know, I liked the idea of, you know, taking a raw piece of land and turning it into something. And so this was a just a really good friend I'd vacationed with. And I thought, man, I'd like to know what he does. So that's that's why I wanted, you know, I guess I was greedy, Tom. I wanted more. Because uh, my plan was to have enough money coming in to where I, I had choice of, you know, whether or not, you know, I worked or not. So that's why I wanted. I want, and I still do it to this day. In fact, before we started, you and I were talking about mentors teaching us things that we don't necessarily know as much about because everybody knows something that we don't. Every person on the planet knows something that we don't. And we can always learn something from them. So you, uh, not only do you want do you want to learn, but you've looked at the the team that you need to build around you. So talk a little bit about that team, a little bit more about how do you, how, besides the mentor, how'd you go about finding the team? I mean, for example, a lot of people say, well, I can't find a good property manager or it's really hard to find a good banker, you know? So what, what did you do to go about actually assembling that team, deciding who you needed on your team and how to put that team together? You bet. A, a little bit of it was blind luck. I stumbled on my property manager for uh, for the student housing. So that was that was good luck. Uh, and you stumble on a few people, but uh, I didn't know where to go. So I, I went to people that had good teams. I went to folks that were already successful. And I said, hey, you know, gee, how do you do that? Who do you know that does this? And they would send me to folks. And sometimes it would work out. Sometimes it wouldn't. But I, I went and asked people that already had good teams, asked them to refer me to folks. And you know, you learn over time and your team changes because your needs change. You know, my my CPA was quite adequate for early on, but then I needed somebody who really knew how to do proactive tax planning, which is why you're my CPA. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so you, you learn as you go. So I, I kind of, you know, I plagiarized the team from other people with, you know, with their consent. Got it. Got it. So, um, so we, I started this with uh, how the, the government incentivizes real estate. So when you look at real estate, I, I know you look at it as a way to um, increase your, you know, to have passive income, et cetera. And there's a lifestyle aspect to it. Uh, right. Do you look at real estate from the standpoint of, you know, having housing for other people and creating housing? In other words, why do you think the government might incentivize 
real estate um, as opposed to some other industry? Yeah. Uh, well, we need housing. And we all know there's there's an affordability. I mean, I'm in Austin, Texas, where prices are going up. There's an affordability crisis. It's everywhere. It's why a lot of people moved out of San Francisco, that sort of thing. There are people that need housing. Uh, we are still in the apartment world. We're still woefully underbuilt, believe it or not, despite the fact that we've gone crazy and built, you know, hundreds of thousands of units in the last few years. Uh, so the government needs housing because people have a roof over their head, are stable. They can work and produce and pay taxes. Uh, it's a it's a pain to build something. And so, you know, at least my impression is the government wants to make that, make that less painful, maybe wants to become our partner. So they give us quite a few tax tax benefits for building or buying real estate. So um, what kind of uh, impact, did, did, were you looking at the tax aspects of real estate when you started investing or were you just looking at the passive income aspects? I, honestly, I was looking at the money, right? And, uh, and you know, we learn as we go along. So I would, I would, I would did my own stuff, and I would invest in in other people's deals, and I'd get these documents, whether it be a K one or my my financial statement. I'd I'd realize I was losing money on paper, but paying less taxes. Uh, and so I'd run through the house telling my wife, "Look how much money I lost on this deal," and she didn't understand what I meant, but it meant we were paying less taxes because I was a physician, so I was getting ordinary income, and you know what the taxes are for that. But that blended tax rate just kind of started lowering and I was keeping more money. So I learned it on the fly. Interesting. So um, if we can, can we just run through a simple example? I'd like, uh, it, it's hard to do this um, audio um, to, to run through numbers, but I'm going to make the numbers really simple. So okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and start. I'm going to say, um, if, if you don't mind sharing, um, what was the purchase price of that first condo? Oh, easy. It was $83,000. Okay. So, um, and are you fine? Can you still find, um, a property for a hundred thousand dollars in the U S? Oh, not, I can't, Tom Burns can't, I'm somebody might, but I'm not, I'm not sure what you get, but no, no, I don't think so. It, it, it's tough. So, so if you have $20,000 to invest, can you go find a $20,000 property? I don't think so. No, it's, it's pretty tough, right? Yeah, so, so right. one of the things that you would have to do is you'd have to have the capital to do that. So right. you were you were at the advantage. You were a doctor, so you you were making some money. So you right. had the capital, which is why you had the high tax rate at the same right. time, is because you you and you did have the excess money. But let let's take a simple example. So let's let's go to hundred thousand. So okay. if um because I understand in the Midwest there's still there there are few and far between, but there's still some hundred thousand dollar property. One of the most important numbers in real estate is cap rate, and can. Can you kind of walk through what that means and why that's important? Yeah, cap rates it, it's can be a, a a confusing a confusing number. So essentially, if you bought, so you're talking about this hundred thousand dollar property. If you bought that hundred thousand dollar property for cash and it had a five percent cap rate, uh, the essentially that's telling you that you'll make five thousand dollars a year if you and, if and you that's after it. expenses, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, so that's your net income, basically, right. before you have any debt, right? Exactly. So that that's that that's that cap rate. So, um, what would be in in your mind uh, right now, where interest rates have gone up and so forth? What would be a cap rate that you think would be acceptable to you? 
So we're seeing, you know, we were looking at cap rates that were, when times were good, we were looking at cap rates below three. And and for those listening, the lower the cap rate, the more expensive the property is to right. buy because it's an inverse uh, equation. So, uh, but I've now heard, I just heard recently, somebody was going to buy an apartment complex at a five and a half cap rate. That's significantly expanded from where it was 24 months ago. Okay. And if you bought a smaller property, you'd probably get a higher cap rate depending on where it was, right? Probably would. Yeah. You'd probably be. And I, I did hear another one. It was a 6.2 going in cap rate. So not bad. Okay. So, um, so in, in, in using the numbers, I'm going to actually take a little higher cap rate just so that the numbers are easier. Cause I know the math I Thank can you. do that. I can do this math. I think we can do it audio. Um, but let's say I had an 8% cap rate. So if I had an 8% cap rate, that would give me on $100,000, that would give me $8,000 a year, right? Right. Okay. So um, interest rates right now are upwards of 6%. Oh, yeah. So one of the things that um, that I, I always explain to people is that it's not the cap rate that's the most important. It's the difference between the cap rate and the loan and the lending rate. Right. You agree with that? Absolutely. Because that's the spread, right? That's the leverage you're getting from the debt. So if you have a cap rate of 5%, but you have an interest rate of 6%, probably not a good deal to go out and leverage that property. Right. So it's making it hard now. It's putting more money down. Exactly. So that means that, well, or, you know, you've got to find a different kind of property, right? So that, Yeah. More right. I mean, it's, it's actually bringing prices down, which is the whole goal of right. the Federal Reserve, right? It's to bring prices right. down, which bring, when you bring prices down, you push cap rates up by definition, because if the rents aren't coming down and the prices are coming down, then by definition, your cap rates are going up. So right. let's say we had a 6% interest rate. Could we get a 6% interest rate? Yes, you can. Yeah. Okay. All right. So if we get a 6% interest rate and we put 20% down. So let's say instead of taking that $100,000 and buy a $100,000 property, we get $400,000 from the bank and we buy a $500,000 property. Okay. Right. So the banks put in, so our basically our debt to equity ratio, which we, the accounting term for it would be four, right? Four right. times the debt to the equity. Right. Right. And right. if my difference between my, my cap rate, and my interest rate is 2%, and my debt to equity ratio is four, four, then that means that the debt is actually making me 8% on that property. Does that make sense? Yes. So now what we've done is simply by using debt, we've gone from 8% to 16%. But let me let me ask the question. So people frequently, there's, there's, uh, there's some very popular uh, influencers out there that say, don't use debt. Right. So, so, you use debt all the time and you've you used debt from the beginning, right? So right. give me the argument for debt versus no debt. Oh, you bet. So, you know, now it's, if you're buying, if you're using debt to buy a couch or maybe your car, then, you know, it, it, it is maybe, maybe makes some sense not to use debt, but as one of our good friends, Robert Kiyosaki says, debt will make you wealthy. And the reason for that is, you know, you, you put in, you put in, so in the example you just gave, you put in 20% of the money, the bank puts in 80%. Well, you as the investor are going to get 100% of the benefits of the property. You get all of the income, you get all of the tax benefits, which you're an expert on that, all the depreciation and all the write-offs and things like that. So 
uh, the bank just wants their money back. So by using other people's money, you can increase the size of your portfolio and not and not many. There are hardly any large portfolios that weren't built on debt. So so why do you why do you want to increase the size of your portfolio? Why not just have the smaller portfolio, but no debt? Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine. He's a client of mine. He's a former board certified surgeon and he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. Well, you know, the the, the more doors you own, the more uh, more income that comes into you, the more freedom you have to decide what to do in life. Okay, so let's look at the negative side of debt. So if, uh, um, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of capital calls right now, okay? okay. And this is because of the debt, because right. short-term debt was used on a long-term asset. This is what, the, the, this is kind of the fundamentals to me is that you use long-term debt on a long-term asset, you use short-term debt on a short-term asset. Right, good point. So, so people... The reason they were using short-term debt on real estate is because they were planning on only owning it for two or three years. And if you're only going to own it for two or three years, even if the interest rate goes up, you're still better off with short-term debt. I mean, the, right. the, the, the numbers work very heavily towards short-term debt. But right. what happens if you decide, well, I need to own the property longer? You've owned your condos. I'm guessing you didn't put short-term debt on those condos. No, long-term debt on everything. You put long-term debt on anything, everything. Absolutely. And, and why do you do that? Why, why the long-term debt? <laughs> I don't like to get caught in the squeeze, you know, long-term debt. That means you can put it away and forget about it. That's why I haven't had to see that place for 25 years. Um, so long-term debt, you know, there's, there's, there's three variables. There's, there's, there's your interest rate, property taxes, and the market forces that affect your, your real estate property. So if you can fix your debt, you eliminate one of those three. Uh, taxes are typically going to rise. Sometimes you can fix that depending on what you do, and then you can't control the market. So uh, control what you can. The longer the debt, the better. Uh, and so it's just real estate is a long-term game. There are now, of course, there are people that are flippers, and that's more of a business than than real estate investing. So I prefer long-term debt, and it's your it's your education that helps you know helps keep you out of that kind of trouble because you know maybe some folks haven't haven't had the opportunity to see that times change. Uh, things don't always go up. Real estate's not always uh, always easy to do. And uh, boy, when you get caught, you know, think, things go up slowly, they come down quickly. So short-term debt can bite you in the behind. I, I, that's, I, I think that's really good advice. Now, one of the things that uh, I always explain is that uh, I always look at the purpose of an asset like real estate is to put money in your pocket, right? It's to actually right. increase your income and your cash flow. Um, and the purpose, the reason you get the debt is to increase the amount of assets you can get. Right. Um, and so my theory is, is that, and I want your take on this, Tom, my theory is, is that if you're afraid of debt, it's because you don't trust the asset. Right. Good point. Well put. And you, might not have the and you might not have the education to back it up. 
Well, and I, I think you make a good point is that you, you've spent, you know, you started small, you got, you, you were able to afford the hard education. Um, so you didn't get into something you couldn't afford, which right. is by the way, why we have this whole accreditation process, right? Is that the government doesn't want people getting into something that they can't afford that they can't control. So right. you have to be an accredited investor to invest with somebody else where you don't have to be an accredited investor if you control it yourself. So the government's saying, well, look, if you want to take it on yourself, then um, that's fine. You can do whatever you want. But if you're going to uh, put your money with somebody else, we want to make sure that you can afford to lose that money because you very well might lose that money. Right. And so you learned you, you learned small and then and then you built that team and you got people around you who, who knew what they were doing so that you could minimize that risk. But now, you know, when you look at, because you've gotten really good at uh, multifamily, that's a that that's something you're really good at. You started with condos, now, you know, single single resident, and now you've got multi, multi-resident, big, you've got some very big projects. Um, how confident are you in um, those assets uh, when the real, like right now, the real estate market's in turmoil? How confident are you? You know, I'm always confident long-term. I don't want to sound like a homer that, you know, real estate's always awesome. Everything goes up and down. That's uh, uh, challenging right now. Uh, but I think, you know, I think over the next 12 to 24 months, there'll be challenges. There'll be some folks that are maybe not as well set up and on some short-term debt as you imagined, as not as you imagined, as you mentioned, that are going to have some trouble. But I think long-term, we're still underserved on the amount of units and homes needed to house people. I think real estate is still going to be solid. If you look back over the years, it's always been a growing industry. Uh, very difficult for young people to buy a house now because of these interest rates and the costs of buying a house and inflation. So I think the rental market is going to do very well. And as everybody should know, everything kind of looks good sometimes from the outside, but there are challenges right now. It's difficult to develop properties. It's hard to buy a property that produce, that's stable enough to produce good cash flow. Uh, I understood, but let, let's look at your older properties. So you put long-term debt on there and your debt was less than your cap rate, right? Your Absolutely. debt, your, your interest rate was less than your cap rate, which I still think is the most important thing to learn in real estate is that your your debt um, has to be less. Your, your the rate you pay on your debt has to be less than the rate you're making. Um, right. Do you see that that rents are? Uh, we've seen rents start to soften a little bit. Do you think rents are going to continue to soften? You think they're pretty solid for the long term? I think long. I think long term they're solid. You know, historically they'll they'll go up. You know, one point nine to two point nine percent. But they do change. You know, I remember Tom in the eighties. Uh, you know, two big banners on apartments that said two months, two months rent free and a flat screen TV, right? Or TV, whatever we had back then. So, uh, you know, they do change. But th those are those are not long term trends. Uh, in inflation does continue to to make rents rise, and there is a lot of demand for rental properties. So, yes, if you've got good long term debt, that's where your your interest rates less than your cap rate, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. I like that. Okay, so let's go back to our example. So, so <clears> basically, <throat> what you're saying is is that we we could double, effectively in this example, we double our rate our return on investment. We went from eight percent if we just used our money, versus sixteen percent if we use the bank's money. Right. Right. So so now um, 
I always like to know, okay, so how do we do better? And uh, this is where um, I've done so much of this study, and this is this is what's uh, part of uh, chapter four of the uh, Win-Win Wealth Strategy, my my new book that you're very familiar with and been very um, um, very gracious in promoting. Um, but we have what's called bonus depreciation right now. Yes. And uh, in in your terms, as a real estate investor, how would you how do you describe bonus depreciation? So you know the government. The government wants to be your partner, right? Um, and so they they know that uh, that when you buy when you own a property, stuff wears out, right? You know, land doesn't wear out, but but sticks and bricks and boards and things wear out over time. That's why buildings crumble, I guess, over time. So they they will give you a loss. And so typically, over over the long term, you can get you know you can divide your residential property up into 27 and a half years or, or commercial property, 39 years, you, you can, you can get two, 3% a year of, of phantom loss. You can take that off of your taxes. I'll, I'll have you explain that later, but bonus depreciation is wonderful and was wonderful for the last several years. It's still good today. It's really great at 80%, but there are things that wear out faster than 30 years, Right. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's sheetrock, there's appliances, there's all kinds of things, and there's a schedule, and you can hire an expert who will come in and say these things are going to wear out faster. The government allows you to take all that depreciation up front on a certain type of formula that I don't really understand, but essentially sometimes you can, you can get a very, very large tax write-off in the first year when you own something. Yeah, so, so I'm going to make that I'm going to make that calculation really simple for you, Tom. You're going to be you. able to repeat this over and over again <laughs> to all of your students and everybody you talk to. Um, you'll be able you'll be able to give them this calculation. So, I my experience is that um, the categories of items that make that are qualify for bonus depreciation is basically anything that's under 20 years. Uh, that'll wear out under 20 years. And the category of that typically is going to add up in a in a residential type uh, uh, property to somewhere between 20 and 30% of the cost of the building. So let's take 30% because I can do that math. And if we had 30%, so let's go back to our $500,000 building, okay? okay? So we got 30% of um, that $500,000, which is $150,000. Okay. Yeah. Now we get 80% of that, we get to write off in the first year. So that means 120,000, we get to write off in the first year. That's 80% of 150. So yep. I can, I can do that math because I can subtract 15 twice from 150 and get to 120. Yep. Um, so I'm now at 120,000. And now um, typical doctor, uh, if you now not in Texas, but in states where they have a uh, tax, what's a, what would be a typical tax rate? Boy, if you're in some other states, uh, my colleagues tell they're 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 pushing fifty percent and over with state taxes because you're looking at thirty seven and thirty nine percent plus the Obamacare tax plus state tax, so it's a big hit. So so let's look at let let's we'll we'll make it even simpler. We'll we'll say it's 42. So we've got a 37% federal and a 5% state, let's say. Okay. okay? So that's right. a 42% rate. Okay. So if you, if I do the math right, then um if I if I take off 42% of that 120,000, okay? 
Um, and I put down a hundred thousand, 42% of that 120,000 is about 60,000. Okay. So if, if I, if I'm sorry, it's about 50,000. So if I put down a hundred thousand, but the government gives me back 50,000. Uh-huh. Okay. So do I need to actually, so that's money that I have that I don't need to give the government, right? Right. Right. So does that mean that I can buy not a $500,000 property, but a million dollar property? Yeah. Absolutely. Because I really, I'm if I'm only putting half of the down payment down and the government's putting the other half of the down payment down, then I can buy twice as much real estate, right? Right. That's money in your pocket immediately. You can buy a million dollar property or two $500,000 properties. Exactly. You don't have to wait because you know that you're going to have that money available from the taxes, right? Right. Absolutely. So what that means is if I've got that $50,000 that I'm not giving to the government, then that really means that instead of a 16% return on my investment, I now have a 32% return That's on right. my investment. So basically the government with their incentives, even this year, and it's not as good as it was last year, but even this year is allowing you to double your return on investment because they're going to partner with you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes, sir. I know you like that part of it. I love it. That's why, that's why I love That's why I love listening to you and, and having you as my tax strategist <laughs> because you make it so simple. And it's true. Everything you say is true. And people think it's very complicated. And, and even if you think it's complicated, get somebody on your team that understands it and can explain it like that. It's a it's a gift. As I say, depreciation is depreciation is magic. It's a magical gift from the government. And that sounds pretty flippant, but by golly, it really works. Well, that, that's actually uh, chapter seven of uh, my first book, Tax-Free Wealth, is the magic of depreciation. It is magic. I mean, you think about it. Um, nobody buys real estate because it's going down in value, right? We go, we right. buy real estate because we expecting, uh, may not be where we're planning to make, we're, we want to make cash flow on our real estate, right? And I want to talk about that just for a minute. Um, but we also expect it to go up in value. And yet at the same time, we're getting a deduction as if it's going down in value. Correct. Um, which is pretty cool. Now, some of those things do. We do have to replace things like carpet and and uh, and we have to repaint. I just repainted my house at an exorbitant price. And uh, so, you know, you do have to do those things and those are real expenses um, that you have to consider. But in the meantime, the government is giving you an advance on that money and increasing your rate of return. Um, so um, let's talk about... Um, what role, what, 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 let's just go to kind of wrap up here, but what, what role do you see taxes playing in real estate? You, you've got a lot of investors now, so you're actually syndicate deals, right? Right. Yes, sir. So you have a lot of people coming to you and they're giving you money, just like you might've given somebody else money in the early years. Right. So um, what are they expecting from, um, not just from a rate of return, but how important do you think that tax side of it is to those investors? People are becoming more educated and they're asking, which is great, which I like, you know, that, that education is really improving. So often the investors, investors want, you know, it's show me the money is the first thing, as you said, people want money and they either want their money to grow because they don't need the cash flow now, or they want cash flow so they can choose to do with their time. But many are asking about the taxes. What, you know, will the depreciation be passed through to us as investors or will you be keeping it as the sponsor? And so, 
most of the time and many times uh, if you invest in if you're just one piece of a one person one investor in a large deal they will often pass through a good portion of that depreciation pro rata based on your percentage ownership of the project so you can just as a without having to have all the knowledge you can as a individual investor put a hundred thousand dollars into a deal and get quite a significant bit of depreciation with the sponsors doing all the work to hire the cost segregation engineer and all that stuff. Everything gets done. You get a K-1 at the end of the year that says, hey, look, you lost a whole bunch of money. And that works well on the tax for your tax. Even though you didn't, because that's just a paper loss, right? That's exactly. not a real loss. Exactly. Paper it, loss. It, exactly. And actually, I would take it one step further. Um, you're actually, as the sponsor, required to pass that on to the investor. Now, a lot of yeah. sponsors do not re, do not know that. And so that's actually something to really pay attention to is does your sponsor, the sponsor that remember Tom, you were talking about the team, right? Yep. And nowhere is the team more important when you're relying on somebody else's team. It's not your team. It's somebody else's team. Right. And part of that team is does this, does the sponsor, um, uh, does the syndicator actually understand uh, how the tax law works and are they, are they actually passing on that depreciation, which by the way, under the law, they're required to, I want to be really clear. This is not an option for most real estate deals as a, as a, as a general rule, if you've got non-recourse debt, which means that the sponsor is not personally liable for it. If you've got non-recourse debt, you have to pass the depreciation on to those who put the money in. So that, that I actually think that's a very important note for people who are thinking about investing with somebody else. So that's interesting. As long as I've been in this, uh, we have always passed on the depreciation. Of course, I don't know if I knew that we had to. Uh, so again, you always, you can always learn something. So, so you mentioned something, um, you know, there's, there's always this uh, kind of competition between, are we looking for cash flow or are we looking for appreciation? Right. And can you talk about just for a minute here about the importance of cash flow? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's how I that was that was my one goal. I just want to cash flow. Uh but let you know, we don't talk just about me. Cat, you know, cash flow, cash flow that comes in whether you work, vacation, play with your kids, or sleep is uh is another little bit of magic, just like depreciation. You know, once you have cash flow, I ask my people to to figure out what it costs them to live. And, uh, and, you know, once your cash flow that comes in without your effort equals what it costs you to live, you can decide what you want to do. Uh, and so that could be continue to work, work harder, or grow that cash flow. That gives you choice, choice of what to do with your time, control of your life. So cash flow, it, it, it gives you freedom. So cash flow is king, right? So that's, that will give you that will give you the ability to make a lot of choices with some comfort that you don't have to worry where your next meal is coming from. Uh, the flip side is the capital appreciation, which is where you put your money in and it sits for all. It's a best, essentially buy buy low, sell high, right? Buy a stock low, sell it high. Buy a buy a property for eighty three thousand, sell it for two hundred twenty years later. That sort of thing. So. Uh, I personally, whether it's right or wrong, have favored cash flow because that gives you the ability to choose and decide what you wish to do with your next investment. And and when you do it, right? I mean, here's exactly. here's one of these. So so let's get to what's going on in the market right now with right. The, the, the time we have remaining. So, um, like I said, I'm I'm seeing a lot of capital calls 
right now. I'm sure you are too. Um, yes. And this is because uh, they had to put a, um, they, they actually had to pay the bank to cap the interest rate on those short-term loans. And now the bank's coming back saying, well, interest rate's gone up so much. We need you to buy a, another loan cap, but this is a lot more expensive. So a loan cap that might've been $40,000 last year is $3 million this year. Right. It's right. literally gone up that much because of the uncertainty in the interest rates. So when you're looking at the economy right now, I mean, who I mean, what do you first of all, what do you think is going to happen? What where do you think real estate is going in the short run? Let's not talk about the long run. Right? We know where you want you think it'll go in the long run, but the short run, what do you think is going to happen? Hey, I, I think there's going to be trouble. I don't think it's going to be the bloodbath of 2008. But there's going to be trouble. And there are a lot of opportunistic funds out there who believe the same thing. And we're seeing it. We're, I mean, Tom, we're seeing it right now. I mean, I'm at a real estate conference right now. And there are there are people that there are a couple of things that happen. One, there are people that had short term bridge debt for doing value add on multifamily. They're running out of that. And if you and they're either going to have to do a capital call or sell for a loss because interest rates have gone up so high that they're a bit underwater. That's that's a problem. Uh Development projects, they're taking longer. And so the loans are starting to amortize now when, when typically expected to be leased up and stabilized by then. So there's some trouble out there. I think they will all get rescued by either capital calls, uh, pref equity infusions, or purchased by opportunistic funds. I think everything will be okay. Uh, we're not going to see empty neighborhoods like we did in 2008. Uh, but there will be people that make money and there will be people that unfortunately are on the other end of that equation. I think in the long run, we're going to be fine. Uh, and we look at our portfolio, you know, nothing's perfect, right? We have issues with supply chain and COVID has stretched out our timelines, has made us work a little harder as sponsors, but we know long-term that things are going to be fine. So I think, yeah, the 12 to 24 months, Lord knows what's going to happen, but it's going to, it's going to require some, uh, some lightness on your feet and, a good team and access to capital and some creativity. But I yeah, think we're so, all going to come out of it. So so what are you recommending investors do over the next 12 to 24 months? So um, uh, I personally am having some, so have some cash so that you can take advantage of opportunity if you see it. If you're not sort of in that all the time and you're relying on other sponsors, uh, this will sound funny, but I, I would suggest you seek out some sponsors with a little silver in their hair. Somebody that's been through the recession of 2008, 2009, maybe back to 2001, because um, it is, again, we don't know what we don't know. And if you've never been through a recession, you just don't know how fast things happen. So if you want to keep, I always think people should always be looking for investments, staying in the market, investing if they find something that makes sense for their, for their investment thesis, uh, but stay in the game because things are going to change, but just you know, be conservative. We are looking currently now for the best of the best. We actually cut down what we were going to do. I think everybody should not be too greedy and look for the best and, you know, interview previous investors, interview your sponsors, be kind of picky about that. If you're investing with somebody else's expertise and somebody else's team. Well, and, and obviously there are some things that you can do that are just, like you say, it comes back to the math. And I love that that's where you started is it yep. comes back to the math is that, look, if your cap rate and you're confident in your cap rate and your cap rate's higher than your interest rate and your interest rate's a long-term interest rate, okay? And it's not just, you know, because they're talking now about another 
half percent raise, right? And they're talking right. about accelerating um, where the, the market all thought that this was going to level out, but then inflation raised its ugly head again um, last month. So um, if if you're looking at those numbers, are, are you comfortable that if you find a property where the cap rate is there, there's some good spread between the cap rate and the interest rate that you're going to be okay? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, example is, you know, I've been around for a while. I bought my first house at a 10% interest rate and I was happy to get it and it worked out fine. Uh, you know, and even before that it went higher. So the math tends to follow. Sellers tend to, you know, they, they're a little slow at uh, with their, their pricing, but the market pretty much forces that hand. And so we do see cap rates rising and it, it all levels out. It's just sometimes they're a little bit disjointed in their timing. So I'm, I'm, ultimately confident real estate's been good real estate goes back thousands of years it's going to be okay and it's very local so you know the government would say hey real estate's down right now it's not the favored asset class well real estate is hyper local there's always a good deal whether it's good times or bad times i like that so if you were to say two or three things that an investor could do right now when it comes to um, real estate investing what would you tell them I would tell them, try to understand the numbers that Tom talked about. Those really are important. And that gives you some confidence and comfort. I would, I would continue to get educated. Let you know, look at, uh, listen to podcasts, get, get feeds sent into your email so that you can just stay up on what's going on. It helps to understand some macroeconomics to see what people are saying. They're going to say different things for sure. And get to know some, if you are a passive investor, not an active investor, get to know some sponsors, talk to people that are really happy with who they've, they've worked with, get some references, talk to folks, um, and, and, and be ready. And, you know, you, if you, if you do your homework, you can do pretty well and there, nobody's ever going to guarantee that you're going to make money. But what you want is if you happen to lose money or not make as much as you thought you were going to make, you want it to be because of market forces that were unforeseen, not because of somebody that was not capable or had a lack of integrity. That's very important when you're investing with somebody else. I love that. Thank you, Tom Burns. Uh, Tom's Bur Tom Burns' book is Rich Doctor. And you can find them at richdoctor.com. Um, I, I love what you've done. I love your experience. And I love you sharing your experience, Tom. And I, I know you're really spending, putting a lot of effort into sharing your your experience and educating people. Really appreciate that. I might add one more thing is that to make sure that if you are looking at your sponsor, make sure that the sponsor understands taxes and that they you and that they're doing that cost segregation. They're giving you that bonus depreciation because remember the taxes can double your rate of return. So who doesn't, you know, do you, do you really want to get the lower rate of return? Did you want to double your rate of return and get those big tax benefits? And I think when you do this and you really follow the numbers, you start small, you get the team around you, all these great, uh, all this great education that Tom uh, recommends. What's always going to happen is you're always going to make more money and pay less tax. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. You've been listening to the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.